do not have to listen to me for a long period of time, which is always your benefit. Um, we have a guest speaker again today, Ian Dalziel, who is our newest elder or observer elder. So he is going through his six months of checking out whether eldership is right for him and us and all of that. And I'm not saying that this message is going to determine whether we bring you on as a proper elder. I'm also not saying it's not. So, you know, no pressure. Enjoy it. I kid, I kid. All right, come on up, Ian. Uh, as he's coming up, I just want to highlight the fact that our elders um, do a lot of really amazing things for us as leaders in our church. Um, and so there's a lot of different roles, a lot of pastoring and shepherding and praying for people. And one of the roles that our elders perform is uh, teaching and, and taking God's Word and bringing it to us. Um, and so that's one of the roles I take on as a sort of preacher elder, and Ian also is going to be helping us out with that as well. So I'm going to pray for Ian, and then I'm going to let him uh, share the word with us. Lord, I just thank you so much for Ian, and I thank you for the words that you've given him uh, for us this morning. May we listen well. May we hear and open our hearts to, to you as you sort of work on us and take those words and sort of impact our lives. Uh, we just thank you that you are willing to do that and to grow us and to draw us closer to you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks, Hamish. Don't be too put off by the uh, small forest of paper I'm carrying. It's, it's large print. That's, that's why there's so many pages. As you get older, these things um, are seen to try us more and more. Um, it feels more like a home group, really, doesn't it? <laughs> Just by way of introduction, um, can I ask Debbie to make sure Tim stays awake during this? Um, some of you have had, had, had me preach at you before, have, have heard me speak, and I'd ask you all to stay awake and, and just act like you haven't. Um, the rest of you, this is a bit of a new experience. Um, I'd just like to, by way of introduction, just give you a, f a few heads up. When I prepare a message, I seek to do a couple of things, and I hope that this is what happens. My biggest hope is that each one of us goes away from here today with our faith slightly stretched to be a wee bit closer to Christ in some way. I hope that what God has laid on my heart to share with you today, that in that there is something for everybody. And I invite you, if I say something in the first paragraph that really grabs your attention, tune out for the rest of it and let the Spirit work with you on what has grabbed you. Because that's what's important, is the Spirit working in our hearts. So I hope that's going to happen. I've got to trust the Spirit on that. And it was interesting as I was uh, preparing this this week, um, it's been a while since I last uh, uh, had the privilege of sharing a message. Um, and as I was preparing this week, I, I got to the point yesterday, I thought, well, I'd better run through that and time it. Because Nate in particular likes to set his watch by the length of sermon time, <laughs> so he gets home for lunch. And as I did it, I thought, well, if I time it and there's too short... Am I going to pad it out with something? No, no, I'm not going to do that. If it's too long, is there something I want to cut out? No, no, there isn't. Oh, I'm not going to bother. It's just going to be how long it's going to be. So we're in this together for the long haul. All right. Um, if you remember, we've just been going, we've been going through Romans, and we're in chapter 8. And last week, Ty... Uh, took us through quite a few things. And I'll just remind us of the. I'll just touch on the points that came up last week, and 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 what Paul was writing about. 
So he's just laid out some truths about our relationship with the Holy Spirit. He's given us some truths about the suffering and hope in light of our status as adopted children in the family of God. He's gone through a bit about the way that the Spirit is interceding on our behalf and on the behalf of all believers. And he finished up with that rather knotty passage about foreknowing and predestining us and glorifying us and justifying us, which is actually really quite hard, hard to understand. As humans, we're kind of wedded to the idea of free will. And this predestination thing rubs the wrong way. I'm not going to talk about that today. That's a whole other series of messages which will lead us down a rabbit hole. But now, at the end of chapter 8, Paul seeks to reinforce the hope that we have as believers with a series of rhetorical questions. The answers to which are obvious. That's what a rhetorical question is. And once again, they're somewhat contrary to parts of our human nature. Is it going to work? No. Put that back in your pocket. All on you, thank you. What then, he says, shall we say about these things? Referring back to the stuff that he's just talked about. He is asking for a response. If God is for us, who can be against us? Indeed, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us, how will he not also, along with him, freely give us all things? Right out of the box, Paul sums up the point of the whole passage about the basis of our hope being in God himself. By setting us and all believers firmly with God on the same side, he has placed us in a position that is beyond challenge. Just as God is beyond challenge. The God who created the universe governs it, led Israel, sent the Messiah gave us his son to die, raised him from the dead, performed glorious miracles, poured out his spirit upon us, called us into his kingdom. That's the God that's for us. That's the God that we have been joined with. Just as for David when he faced Goliath, nothing can bring us down. This should make us feel pretty confident. but it's almost too good to be true. And for many, if not for all of us, at least in part, we feel that it's too good to be true. We think it's too good to be true. And we are perhaps haunted to varying degrees by the sense that such benefits are undeserved. And certainly undeserved they are. There is no human that has ever earned what is promised and what God offers. But nevertheless, the benefits have been paid for in full. As Paul illustrates by reminding us of Jesus' sacrifice to gain back the relationship with humanity. The love that is demonstrated by God here must surely convince us of the certain hope that belief in Christ brings. Yet we struggle with our sense of unworthiness. And when I say these things, generalisation, please hear 
that Ian struggles with these things. We struggle with the incredibly lofty nature of that promise of being with God, of being in God's family, of being above challenge, of being beyond reproach, because that's what God has made us. And we struggle with this particularly when so much of our daily experience seems bereft of his presence. We struggle to remember that this is about God and Christ, it's not about us. This reminder of Christ's sacrifice also answers the question that follows. If God did not withhold his son, of course we can trust that we will receive all the things that he promises us as his adopted children, co-heirs with Christ. All of that is ours. If the declaration that God is with us isn't enough, Paul poses a further pair of rhetorical questions, challenging the idea that somehow we will still be found unworthy, despite God being on our side. Who will bring any charge against God's elect, he says? It is God who justifies. Who is the one who will condemn? Christ died, and more than that, he was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, and who is also interceding for us. Now here Paul calls to mind a metaphor of the courtroom, where we are cast as the accused. When I read verses 33 and 34, I sometimes wonder if something has been lost in translation. And what Paul was really doing here was having a little joke. And what he, he was actually doing was asking two questions. Who will bring any charge against God's elect, asked in a straight voice. The second part, I suspect that he might have said, wanted it to be said a bit like this, who will bring any charge against God's elect? God? Are you kidding? With that strong note of incredulity that anyone could think that it would be God that brings the charge against us. And yet there is a not-so-subtle challenge to some feelings and perceptions that are common to humanity. After all, God is the party offended by our sin. He has every right to bring those charges against us. He is the only one that does. And that is logical and just, by all our measures, that he would be the one accusing us. There is no doubt of our own guilt. We can be in no doubt that we are guilty of sin. And it's inconceivable for us that anyone would get off scot-free when we stop to think about it, much as we would like to. Deep down, I think all of us know that we're guilty, that we have sinned, and that God is in it, has every right to accuse us and to charge us. But the truth is that God chooses to express his love for us as grace. Grace being favour bestowed when the opposite is deserved. In his immeasurable grace, God has forgiven all and pronounced us righteous. And this is not the word of just any old heavenly being, not some celestial official, not some angelic officer. No, no, this is the edict 
of the Lord God Almighty, sovereign, supreme over all creation. There is no room for argument. Okay, so it's not God that accuses. So Paul says, repeats the question, but putting Christ in the, in the question, suggesting with the same incredulity that Christ might be the one to condemn us. Again, our understanding of justice screams that Jesus has every right to condemn us. He was the one that took the punishment that each of us justly deserved. It's our sin that necessitated his sacrifice on the cross as the essential linchpin in God's plan to restore humanity and indeed all creation into relationship with him. But, but says Paul Christ, beyond forgiving us, is acting in our interest. He's interceding for us at God's right hand. Again, grace floods in. Overwhelming human understanding, defying our logic and kicking guilt to the curb. This is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, second only to God the Father. And as I say that, I realise that we are, have to put aside the whole Trinity thing for just a second. Yet another sermon there, all several. And this Christ, the Son of God, is not accusing us. He's our advocate. And if we think back to verse 27 for a minute, we see that we hold the entire trifecta. For the Spirit too is interceding on our behalf. The whole Trinity, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, is for us. And if we pause to consider this, it cannot be any other way. For our triune God cannot be divided against himself. The prosecution is looking pretty shaky. Who then remains to bring the charge? Not God, not Christ, not the Spirit. Well, of course, there is old hairy legs. The devil himself. Peter warns us in 1 Peter 5.8 to be sober and alert. Our enemy... The devil, like a roaring lion, is on the prowl looking for someone to devour. In the Greek text, the word translated as enemy, oh, I've written it in Greek, is antidikos. And this also means adversary or opponent. And yet they're all similar meanings. But if we cast our minds and imagine back and imagine that court setting again, God is the judge, we're the accused, Christ and the Holy Spirit are our defence team, and there's Satan. The accuser hurling accusations of every kind at us. Some are the kernel of truth, but much of it is lies, for this is the way he operates. And remember that the devil doesn't care what charges stick. He doesn't care about proving it. He doesn't care about anything except our destruction. And he is hell-bent on destroying us, because that is the only way he can get at God. And let's just pause for another minute and think back to the passage in Genesis where this was all foretold in the garden. And the words are something like this, and I haven't got it, so this is from memory and will be slightly inaccurate. But God said to the serpent, you will strike his heel, but he will crush your head. And he was talking about that relationship between the devil and humanity. The devil will strike our heel, but Jesus will come and crush his head. If we think forward to Jesus' 
sacrifice, the time at the cross, Satan got his heel, and for a moment there, I'm sure Satan thought he had won. Jesus rose again, crushed the devil's head. The victory is there, done and dusted, and the devil knows it, but he won't stop, he can't stop, and he will do everything he can to pull us down. So thinking again about that court setting, the devil is there ranting at us, railing at us, throwing accusations left, right and centre. And the promise that we have, however, means that we can sit back in the dock, turn to God, and receive that smile, nod and wink that assures us he's got this. The outcome is a foregone conclusion. The case has already been dismissed. We're free. At this point we should remember that Paul is writing in about 55 to 57 AD, as the best that scholars can estimate the time of writing, to a church that has, has experienced persecution which is still very fresh in their memories. As Hamish told us several weeks ago now, months ago, um, the Emperor Claudius had expelled the Jews from Rome, and that included the Chris Christian Jews. That happened, they think, in about 49 AD. So only about six years before this letter was written. And that edict lasted until Claudius died, and that prompted the return of the Jews. So this is really fresh history for these, for these people. They experienced persecution that we just probably can't even imagine. It's also interesting to note that in hindsight, there is a hint of prophecy in Paul's words here. Because in a decade or so, Nero is going to unleash on the, po on the Christian population. Sadly, some Christians, even today, seem to respond to such grand, all-encompassing promises as Paul has laid out by saying, but what about? And I, I, I know that this has been an experience in my past, that you get promised and you think, that's fantastic, but what about that thing that I did? Feel these feelings I have, the thoughts I have. And Paul, perhaps recognising this and possibly anticipating those readers will still harbour doubts, now doubles down and addresses particular areas of struggle that are common to all of us. To begin, he asks another rhetorical question, this time with agape love as the object. Now, agape love is tightly aligned with grace, for it is the unconditional unmerited love that God bestows upon humanity despite our sin and rebellion. Even though Paul uses Christ's love here and God's love at the end of the chapter, they are one and the same and the terms are interchangeable. Remember? Triune God. Three in one. They interchange quite nicely at times. The point is that we are God's beloved children. And nothing can come between him and us. Romans 8, 35 to 37, we're getting there. Who will separate us from the love of Christ, says Paul? Will trouble or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or the sword? As it is written, for this, your sake we encounter death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we have complete victory through him who loved us. 
So while there is the temptation to interpret each of these narrowly with the particular circumstances of the Roman church in mind, particularly the persecution, Paul is likely to have in mind a much broader scope, one that encompasses the whole range of human and Christian suffering. There is no occurrence, no matter how serious, no matter how trivial, no matter what the origin, natural or human, that can separate us from Christ's love. Also in mind here is a subtle reminder that the trials and tribulations each of us face are almost certainly not unique. The idea that they are is our self-centred human nature, holding tightly to the misconception that our experiences like us are unique. Almost everything that Christians go through, that humans go through on this planet, is experienced by multiple people, many, many people. And in the case of persecution, Paul goes further reminding us with a verse from Psalm 44 that the suffering because of God, for your sake, is for God's sake, has a long tradition for God's people. In Matthew 5, Jesus said much the same thing in the Beatitudes and added that such persecution is counted as blessing. And we should remember too that Jesus warned his followers on multiple occasions that suffering particularly persecution, is an integral part of following him. We are to expect it, and it will be counted as blessing when we are persecuted on his behalf. Natural disasters happen. They are common. But none of that, none of that, can separate us from Christ. And that's the, to counterpoint that rather depressing list, Paul affirms that none of that can separate us from sharing in complete victory that Christ has already won because of his love for us. It should be noted that this is not a promise to avoid suffering in this life, but rather a promise that we share the victory despite our experience in life that indicate otherwise. Remember too that there is a, an aspect of this, that the complete realisation of that victory is something that is reserved for our eternal future. Are we confident yet? Do we feel reassured? I guess Paul thought that he needed to add yet more to this. Having covered the whole gambit of natural disasters and man-made catastrophes and denying that they have the power to separate us from God, Paul now doubles down again. Or is that triples down? I can never work that out. And he gets all metaphysical, which means that he goes outside of the, the range of day-to-day -day human physical experiences that we can sense. And he goes straight for the biggies. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor heavenly rulers, nor things that are present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The ten elements Paul lists here are things that all have at least some dimension beyond our daily experience. We're aware of them. We can't feel them. We can't touch parts of them. Death and life form a pair 
like yin and yang, opposites yet each needing the other for definition, and together describing the inexorable progression of creation through time. Even now, with all the awesome array of human technology and knowledge and understanding, we have virtually zero control over this never-ending cycle, this never-ending juggernaut that is just life. Death includes the decay introduced into creation and the eternal destruction to come. While life covers everything experienced in this present life and in the eternal life to come. The next pair addresses the heavenly realm, naming angels and powers. Angels, I guess we all understand that probably. some degree that's, that's pretty, pretty uh, straightforward. But there is quite a bit of debate about what Paul meant with the other part of the pair um, by heavenly rulers. Does he mean temporal authorities such as political rulers or does he mean demons as the opposite to angels? The Greek text here uses arche or archai, the plural form of arche which is simply means ruler. So it's unclear in itself. Um, quite a number of translations add heavenly to, to pick up the fact that Paul is not talking about uh, things on earth at this point or, or worldly things. Uh, other texts such as the or other translations such as the NLV go straight for demons to make that juxtaposition clear. This also fits as part of the series of couplets that, that this is the second of third of them, second of three, sorry. Um, and so perhaps Paul really was it does seem like Paul was talking about demons, angels and demons. The third of those couplers is about time, present and future. Again, there's plenty of scope for interpretation, but Paul may be thinking, Paul may be thinking along strict chronological lines that nothing in creation at the present nor in the future can separate us from God's love. Alternatively, in this context, Paul may well be thinking of kingdom in kingdom terms, this present age and the age to come. Either way, the result is the same. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Before the final couplet, Paul throws in the standalone term of powers from the Greek dunamis, meaning power, ability, ruler, or miracle. And this carries a sense of extraordinary or supernatural rather than temporal human authority but that seems quite ambiguous in light of the fact that he's already kind of covered spiritual powers. Um, many scholars seem to think that this is a, a bit of a catch-all of anything not previously mentioned. Paul really wanting to stress nothing can separate us. The final couplet mentioning height and depth, Paul is not primarily concerned with physical size although that is covered here. Um, but these terms, which I guess we've, in the modern world, kind of lost some of the meaning that was understood back in, in, in biblical times of height and depth, often used to reference heaven and the deep chaos of the abyss. Um, and for the original recipients of this letter, these terms would have held deep spiritual significance far beyond the physical world of their daily life. 
And again, it echoes back to the, uh, the creation story where God created heaven and earth, the realm above and the realm below. But just to make sure, Paul ends his list with a final catch-all. Nothing, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. Got it? Nothing. Father, thank you that despite our doubts, despite our human frailties of understanding, there is nothing that can separate us from your love. Lord, when we can't find a car park, when our, when a our loved one has been diagnosed with cancer, when our teenager has lost the power to speak, when our child is misbehaving, when we get a paper cut. None of it, nothing, can separate us from your love. Lord, we, we ask that you would help us to remember that in every situation, every day, every minute. That you have declared us righteous and that you have declared us to be on your side. We thank you, Lord.